that. Um, before we get started, I uh, just want to share a prayer request that came up right before prayer time started so we couldn't um, get it in. But if you've been praying, and I hope you have for um, Jonna Grabowski, uh, Teresa let me know that she is back in the hospital um, and she's at UNC. And so um, as a church family, let's, let's just uh, let's continue to lift Jonna and the Grabowskis up in prayer um, and just pray that the Lord would continue to be faithful um, through this. Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray, and then we, we can get started. Let's pray with me. God, we do think of Jonna. We think of all of those in our midst who either are or have loved ones who are just battling chronic illness, God, um, Doctors have limited knowledge. Um, we have limited resources. But you are unlimited. In your love, your wisdom, your sovereignty, and your care. And so God, we pray that you would do all of those things, be all of those things that we need. And God, that you would be with Jonna and with the others, just reminding them of your faithfulness. And God, as we come to you through your word, I pray that you would continue to be faithful to us by giving us your spirit to impart to us the truth of your word that gives life. You tell us that the gospel is the power of salvation to all who believe. So we pray that you would help our unbelief, God, because even we who are found in you need to daily be saved from ourselves into Jesus. And so would you speak in power this morning, our great and glorious God. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to be spending the bulk of our time this morning in Genesis 22. However, I want to read to you from Luke 19. Uh, because as, as you know, um, even us who are non-denominational, us who are a little bit contemporary in our services, we're, we're not liturgical folk. But even we, the non-liturgical folk, recognize this Sunday and next Sunday uh, within the liturgical calendar. It's Palm Sunday, right? And, and next Sunday is Easter. This is, this is it. This is what we, as a church, we, we, we get ready for every other Sunday. Are these two Sundays? We remind ourselves of, of Jesus who is raised, we remind ourselves of the gospel that finds its, its fullness in the cross. And so I want to read to you from Luke 19, uh, this, this triumphal entry of Jesus, and just make a little bit of comment before we jump into our text. 
And when he had said these things, he went on, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Uh, when he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount called Olivet, he sent two disciples saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it, bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away and found it, just as he told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, Already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace on heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And then scripture goes on and says, And when he drew near and saw the city, Jerusalem, he wept over it, saying, Would that even you had known on this day the things that make for peace. Now in every other account, of the triumphal entry, there's something that the crowds are saying. They're saying, Hosanna. We've already talked about this. We've sang it. Hosanna, God save us. And then here, they continue that. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. And I don't know if you've... I remember the first time I went to an NHL hockey game. It was the Capitals versus the Rangers. Um... And it was in D.C., so everybody was Capitals fans. But my, my family, I'm a first-generation American. My family is all from the Caribbean. My mom's from Jamaica. My dad's from Trinidad. Uh, when they immigrated here, my mom's family, they moved to New York. And so I inherited uh, mostly New York sports teams. Um, and one of those teams is, is the Rangers, just because they're from New York. Uh, but I remember going to that game, and I didn't know anything really about hockey. I didn't know anything about hockey, but as I sat in that arena with that crowd, whenever the Capitals would do something good, like the crowd would just erupt, and there was this electricity in the building, there was just this spirit in the room, and I don't know why, but I just, yeah, Capital, I'm not even a Capitals fan, and somebody would say, he's offsides, and I'd say, yeah, he is, and I didn't know, I don't know what offsides means in hockey. You know, and, and you just find yourself saying things and you don't know what they mean. You don't know the weight of them. But, but the spirit of the crowd just overtakes you. And I'm sure you've all been in situations like that. You leave a concert all jacked up and then you listen to the CD and you're like, I don't like these, these guys. Like, what, what was I on? And, and it, was, it was the crowd. It was the, the spirit of the crowd does crazy things. That's why, as I've said in the past, man, there, there are very few more clear, well, maybe I haven't said it just like this, but there are very few more clear examples of what worship looks like than a sporting event. 
people get in there, man, and the spirit, it's just moving. It just happens to be the wrong spirit, right? It's the spirit of fandom to whatever sports team. And it goes and people, you're high-fiving strangers, right? We're seeing racial reconciliation, right? Like people just hugging. It's like you're just all kinds of things. You don't care of the person's background story. Oh, you're a Democrat, I'm a Republican. Go Canes! And you're just hugging. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Because the Spirit, and you say things like I did, that you don't, you don't know what they mean. And, and that seems to be a common theme in Scripture, too. I mean, they're saying, they're saying, Hosanna, save us. Save us. Glory to God in the highest. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. They're saying all these things. Why? Because it's true. It's right, but they have no idea. And Jesus calls them out on it. He approaches the city and he weeps and he says, oh, Jerusalem, if you knew what it was going to cost for your peace. And this is a theme in the Bible. People say things and they have no idea just how true what they say is. David's a great example of that. How many Psalms do we see quoted in the New Testament? And they're about Jesus. And you think David had any idea? Maybe he had some idea, but not much. Not that much idea. When David says, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. He had no idea he was talking about the ascension. And that he was talking about Jesus, who right now sits at the right hand of the Father. And one day will come back in victory. He had no idea, but he was. And when David says, what is man that you care for him or the son of man that you think of him? Like that's predating the exilic, yeah, the exilic exile prophets who prophesy about the son of man coming in glory. And here's David saying, or the son of man that you care for him. You've made him a little while lower than the angels, but you're going you're gonna to exalt him. He doesn't know that he's talking about Jesus who would incarnate, become human, become lower even than the angels, become lower even than the humans that he's around, die on the cross, and that for that very reason, which we heard read this morning, right, Philippians 2, God would exalt him and give him the name which is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow and every tongue would confess. That doesn't mean that everyone is saved, that means that everyone recognizes the glory of Jesus. And everyone includes his enemies. And all of a sudden, his enemies are at his feet. Everyone will bow before Jesus. Some will do it willingly before they die. Others will do it on the last day. And this is what the text is saying. You think David had that in mind? No. And do you think In Genesis 22, that when Abraham looked at Isaac, considering what was about to happen, and said to him, Son, the Lord will provide for himself a sacrifice. Do you think he had any idea the weight of those words? The Lord will provide for himself a sacrifice. Abraham, Abraham, 
preaches the gospel to Isaac. Millennia before Jesus. He preaches the gospel to us. And so let's look at Genesis 22. It's a very familiar story. I was very tempted actually to have the Jesus Storybook Bible up on here and to read it from that. Um, If you don't have a Jesus Storybook Bible and you have children, get one. All right, now, if you don't have a Jesus Storybook Bible and you don't have children, get one. Uh, It's amazing. It's amazing. Uh, the connections that it makes, because we've been teaching through Genesis, and we've said this, the same thing, time in and time out, that Genesis proclaims the truth of God as found in Christ Jesus. And we've seen it time and time again. We see it in Genesis chapter 3, right? Adam and Eve sin. They clothe themselves in fig leaves to hide their nakedness. God says, No. And he kills an animal and says, clothe yourself in this. He gives them new clothes, clothes of righteousness. We're told later that we are to clothe ourselves in Christ. Jesus being preached. The seed in Genesis 3 that is promised. Abram leaves his place in faithfulness to God. He leaves his home. He goes into the unknown, knowing that through him, through his seed, the entire world would be blessed. Jesus leaves his home. He incarnates with us. Through him we're blessed. I mean, all of them, Noah, Abel, every figure that we've seen, every story that we've seen whispers, as Sally Lloyd-Jones says in in the subtitle, of the Jesus Storybook Bible, whispers his name. Every story whispers the name of Jesus. And this story in a big way. And so turn with me to Genesis 22. And if you would, stand as we read the text this morning. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and rose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey, and I the bo- and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood, 
But where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God. Seeing you have held You've not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, behind him was a ram caught in the thickets by his thorn. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day on the mount of the Lord. It shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I surely will bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men and they arose and went together to Beersheba. And Abraham lived at Beersheba. This is the word of the Lord. And you can be seated. All right, so in the time that we have together, I want to do um, really just a few things. The first thing I want to do is maybe jar us out a little bit of our American, Western, post-enlightenment, democratic understanding of this text. Um, Ask the questions that we would ask and then explain why they're just completely the wrong questions to ask. And then I want to maybe for a second deconstruct the psyche of Abraham. Uh, And then I want, hopefully, by the power of the Spirit, to show you the faithfulness of God so that we might worship Him together. And so the first thing is to... uh, to help us ask the right questions. If you recall, Brad said... If it wasn't last week, it was, it, was, it was one of the weeks before, that when we approach the text, a lot of times the questions that we ask, and a lot of times <clears throat> the, things that we, the things that we find confusing, we find confusing because we don't live in the ancient Near East. We are several thousands of years removed from this story, and so we don't get it. 
We look at it as Americans, right? And so as Americans, we looked at Sodom and Gomorrah. This was the story where Brad was talking about it. And these two men come into the city, and, and they're going to be taken by this mob. And Lot's response is to say, here, take my daughters instead. And we say, hold up. What? And if you remember, Brad, it's because we're Americans, It's because we're Western. It's because we live in the 21st century. Culturally, nobody was reading that text and thinking, wait, why did Lot offer up his daughters? They knew why. They knew it's what was right to be done. They knew, they understood that Lot was a righteous man and understood to some some small degree that these men were from the Lord. They knew Lot was being hospitable as the culture would have dictated it. So they weren't thrown by it. And so here we, we come to this te- text and we, we ask a few questions like, why is God testing Abraham? Doesn't God know everything? And we ask this question, how could God even ask Abraham to sacrifice his son? And more than that, Why was Abraham so ready to do it? Right? If we hear a voice telling us, and and this is what we do, we put ourselves into the situation. If we hear a voice saying, Sean, I want you to take your, your son and I want you to climb him up a mountain and I want you to kill him for me. The first thing I would say is that This can't be from God because God knows everything and climbing up a mountain is something I don't do. (laughs) And the second thing, really the first thing I would say is, no, this get behind me, Satan, because God would never ask me to kill my child. But child sacrifice in ancient Near East was not an unusual thing. It was so usual, in fact, that when God gives commands to his people, he says, don't be like everyone else. Don't be like the pagans who sacrifice their children. God understood the culture. Abraham, this is not, this isn't particularly shocking to Abraham for the reasons that you would think. Abraham is not shocked by this command because God is asking for the sacrifice of a child. In fact, if you read this through the lens of an ancient Near Eastern, the more shocking thing is that God stepped in. That Abraham, knife in the air, ready to plunge, was stopped by the voice of the Lord. That's the shocking thing. But Abraham, this has been done before. Abraham probably knew of, if he didn't know, people who had sacrificed their child or their children to all sorts of pagan gods, all sorts of false gods. This was not unusual. All right? And so for Abraham, that's not what he's thinking. We'll talk a little bit about what he's thinking in just a moment. The other idea is this notion that God is testing Abraham. And doesn't the, doesn't the Bible say that God knows everything? Like, what is 
God trying to find out. In fact, in the end, it says, God says to Abraham, now I know. Now I know that you fear me. Because you wouldn't even withhold your only son. There are multiple things going on here. Because the answer is yes. Yes, God knows everything. We've been looking at Genesis, and one thing that has become abundantly clear is that God has orchestrated all the events of history, leading us directly to the point that we are now, leading us in Scripture directly to the cross. Everything points to the cross. God has planned the ends, and he's planned the means to get there. So yes, God recognizes that Abraham is going to take his child up that mountain, and that unless he intervenes, He's going to kill his son. But God is also reminding Abraham and reminding us of a very important truth. That is this, that we must love God more even than the blessings that he gives us. And that can only happen as you have faith in and fear of God. Right, so this is, this is a cycle. And I actually said it reverse of how I want us to think about it, but let me say that again. That we must understand that God is to be loved and to be desired and to be valued more than the blessings that he gives us, and that that can only happen when we have faith in and fear of him. We'll unpack that in just a little bit. But the question isn't, why is God testing Abraham? It's not. It's what, what's, what's God showing us? What is God doing? So often we come to the text and we want to question God. We don't have to come to the text. We live our lives and we want to question, why is God choosing to do this? Why is God, if God does everything for his glory, then why does God demonstrate his glory in the ways that he does? And the answer is simple, even though you might not like it that much. And the answer is because he's God. (laughs) He's not like us. His ways are above our ways. Who he is is greater than who we are. And so when he does something, it is by virtue good because he is God. And so if he tests Abraham in this way, he is right to. Because he is God. He's not unreasonable. Reason belongs to the Lord. He is not unjust or unfaithful, untrue, because justice, faithfulness, truth are found in the Lord. The answer to the questions that you have about God are, is this, really. (laughs) Who are you, O mortal, to question God? Rather, let's look in faith at what God is doing. And so God says, take your son Isaac to the land of Moriah. Take him to the Mount Moriah and sacrifice him. And Abraham does. 
Why? Why? Because I've already, I've already told you my heart. Uh, apart from the Spirit moving and, and, and really just compelling me, and when I say compelling, I mean more like possessing. Like I can't stop my feet from walking type deal. I'm hard-pressed to say I'm sacrificing my son or my daughter or, or my other son for anyone. Why? What does Abraham expect is going to happen? Fortunately for us, Scripture is not silent on this. We don't have to speculate. In Hebrews 11, we hear about Abraham, and it says that Abraham went willingly to sacrifice Isaac because he believed God. Now, God has been promising Abraham something for quite some time. What is it? That I'm going to make you the father of many nations. That through you, through your seed, and he's even said specifically through this son of yours, Isaac, I'm going to bless the world. And so when God says, now take that son that I've given you, that I've promised you, that I've said I'm going to bless the world through and kill him, Abraham is left with this conundrum do I rest on the faithfulness of God or do I rest on conventional wisdom because conventional wisdom says when I kill my son I can't have grandchildren and if I can't have grandchildren or great grandchildren I can't be the father of many nations God you promised this for me I, I think that I think it makes more sense if I if I let him live. That's conventional wisdom. And then there's faith. And faith says this: God's made a promise; He's been true to every promise that He's He's given me thus far. And faith requires more often than not remembrance, right? So let's remember that Abraham was a hundred. Sarah not too far behind, and God gave them a child nonetheless. So the God who gives children to hundred-year-olds certainly, certainly can raise children from the dead. And that's what Hebrews tells us Abraham thought exactly. Abraham believed completely that when he went up that mountain, he was going to take his knife, he was going to kill his son, he was going to sacrifice him to the Lord, and that somehow, some way, the Lord was going to resurrect his son. And that he was going to be with him. And so when we see Abraham say to his, his men, stay here, the boy and I are going to go up over there, We're going to worship the Lord. Now hear his definition of worship. It's faith and obedience, even in sacrificing his son. We're going to worship the Lord. The Lord is going to do something incredible. He's going to raise my son from the dead. And we're both going to come back to you. That's exactly what he said. 
He said, we're going to worship the boy and I, and we're going to come back to you. Now, if you don't understand Abraham's thinking, what, what's going on in your mind right now is you're saying, okay, so he just lied to them for whatever reason. And it would make sense. If you're about to go kill your son, you probably lie to people. Your wife asks you, where are you guys going to go? Oh, nowhere. You know, you tell your man, we're just going to go up there and worship and we're both going to come back. Because if you say, oh, I'm going to go up there and sacrifice my son. If you think a father has trouble with it, wait till he tells the mother, right? He won't be alive to take the child anywhere. And, and these men, what are they going to say? Right? This is how we think through this. This is how we process it. Well, of course he lied to them because they would say, no, don't do it, dude. Like, that's your son. You're only one. But Abraham believed God. And he believed that, okay, so here we go. We have two things that seem to contradict each other. We've got one promise of God that says, from you will be many nations and the whole world will be blessed. And we've got a command from God saying, now take that son that I gave you that was the the beginning of the fulfillment of my prophecy to you, my promise to you, now take him and kill him. And he found no difficulty marrying them. Let me say this to you. Sometimes in your life, the commands of God seem to go against the logical construction that you have of how the promises of God will play out in your life. And it is better to forsake conventional wisdom and in faith to obey God. Because God who made the promise is faithful He will keep his promise. He's able. He can keep his promise however he wants to. And he is worthy. He is worth sacrifice. He is worth risk. So trust in God. This is what Abraham does. He believes. According to Hebrews. According to scripture. By faith he believes that God is going to raise his kid from the dead. And so then he begins to walk up the mountain. And Isaac, who is old enough to put two and two together, says, all right, we've got wood that I'm carrying. You've got all the necessary resources for fire. And you've got a knife. All right, so we're sacrificing. Um, what are we sacrificing? Um, because typically, when you go to sacrifice, you bring something that you own, a lamb, a ram, a goat. You take that and you sacrifice it. And so, Isaac is just noting that something is out of place. And Abraham says, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. And now this is speculation because scripture doesn't say. All scripture says is that he believed God would raise Isaac from the dead. But I think that Abraham was speaking. 
one of those like manner of speaking sort of ways in one of those figurative sort of ways where if you just rearrange what I'm saying enough, it's true. It's true. God is going to provide for himself a sacrifice. In fact, he did. He gave a hundred-year-old man a son. And he's providing for himself the sacrifice, and, and it's you. It's you. He just doesn't want to say it yet because he loves his son. He loves his son. And here, if, if you remember how we started, Abraham has no idea. Abraham has no idea how right he is and how good it is that he is right. Because as the story goes on, and you know it, Abraham is ready to sacrifice and God says, stop. And he looks behind him and what does he see? The ram for the sacrifice. I can't even imagine what he was thinking then. But he had no idea that that's what God was going to do. He had no idea that he could not, even with his son, provide a sacrifice worthy of satisfying God. Right? Because not only did Abraham have this faith, he also had fear. He feared the Lord, which is something that not enough of us do. We, we like to say we fear the Lord, but when we say it, we like to take the words and sort of mix them up a bit. And so we say what fear means is sort of intense reverence, right? So on a lesser scale, um, I was in reverence of, in awe of Michael Jordan. And so somehow that translates to a minuscule version of the fear and awe, the awfulness, the awesomeness of God. And that's kind of true. It is true that God is awesome and, and, and awe-inspiring. And then when you catch a vision of the Lord, it is breathtaking. But it is also true. It is also true that God cannot tolerate sin whatsoever. And that, that's what this is about. Abraham feared the Lord because he knew God was the Lord who could cast out judgment. How did he know this? Because he saw it. He remembered Sodom and Gomorrah. He remembered what happened when he said his wife was his sister and then did it again. He remembered this truth that God is a loving and faithful God who keeps his promises and loves his people, but he is also uh, a just wrathful God who condemns utterly. See, we actually ought to fear God because he actually could kill us. Like you should be afraid of God. Uh, Ananias and Sapphira in the book of Acts were not afraid of God. Not sufficiently. They did not have a sufficient fear of God. So much that they tried to lie him and trick him. If you remember the story, you know what I'm talking about. They, they sold land, said that they gave all that they had to, to um, the apostles, but they kept some for themselves. And then what did God do? Oh, give us the rest back. Or, or this is, you know, when Hazel 
lies to me. or dis- I look at her and say, look, you could have just told me the truth and it would have been okay, right? And that seems reasonable. God could have said that. Look, I, I never told you to give everything you had in the first place. So, so you could have just said I gave what I gave and that's, that's fine. But God doesn't say that. What God says is you're dead. Like they die. They die. And something happens to the entire church body. Word spreads, and it says that there was great fear among them. Fear. Now, I submit to you that that fear is not, oh, how awesome is God. That fear is we better not cross God, but rather rest in Jesus because he can do that. And Abraham knows. God is being gracious by asking me to give him his son when he could just take him. So there's fear there that we ought to have. And when we fear the Lord, when we trust that he is who he says he is and will do what he says he will do and we fear him, we will respond in faith and obedience to him. But that can only come in the fulfillment of this story. So we know this story. Now we see it. All right, Abraham trusted God, sacrificed his son, or was going to. God said no, stilled the blade, stopped him, and provided a sacrifice. And all of a sudden, the theme for this book becomes what Abraham names the place. The Lord will provide. What? He will provide for himself a sacrifice. It's what he told Isaac that he didn't understand. It's what the people proclaimed on the way to Jerusalem that they didn't understand. Hosanna, God save us. Jesus says you don't understand what that means. What it means is there will be sacrifice. And that God is going to provide it for himself. And that provision is me. And so all of a sudden, Jesus in that day begins the progression of fulfilling what started well before this story, but is encapsulated so beautifully in this story that Abraham the father tells Isaac the son, take this wood upon your back, carry it up the hill and be sacrificed. And then God says, Jesus, my son, go, take the wood upon your back, carry it up the hill, and be sacrificed. God stops Abraham because the blood of Isaac would not have been enough, because he's faithful to his promise. He gives Abraham a ram, but even the blood of that ram is not enough. But the picture there will soon be enough. That it must not be a ram. It must be a son. It must be a man. The man must, however, be God. And so flash forward. Here is the God-man. Jesus, innocent, pure, spotless ram, spotless lamb, sacrificed on the cross for us. And we see it. We see it. And today we celebrate it. 
We begin that celebration because a group of people had no idea what they were doing. I promise you. Crowds started moving. I don't know who was the first one who was like, hey, there's Jesus on a colt. There's a palm tree. Clack. Hosanna. And then everyone just starts. Hosanna. 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 The crowds are joining in. Hosanna. Save us. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. What they don't know is the fulfillment. For he is the Lord Jesus. He is our great and glorious Isaac. Who will climb the hill. Who will be sacrificed for us. And will be the fulfillment of what Abraham thought. Not just what he did, what he believed. Because if you remember, Hebrews tells us that Abraham was going to sacrifice Isaac, believing full well that God would raise him from the dead. He had resurrection on the mind and no idea why. Well, let me tell you why. Because Jesus isn't still on the cross. God sent his son up that hill on our behalf. He died because God is wrathful. And because there were bowls of wrath that our sin was filling up. There were cups of wrath that God was going to say and is going to say to all of those who do not believe in him, who reject Jesus. God is going to say, here is the cup of the wrath that I have for you who are in your sin. Drink it. Here's the catch. It never goes empty. Except that God himself, Jesus, on the cross, drinks the cup of the wrath of God and he drinks it to the dregs, to the very last drop. He licks it dry so that we who believe in him, who look to him, may have may have life, may be forgiven. Jesus died for the penalty of our sin, but God fulfilled even the belief and thought of Abraham. He raised Jesus from the dead in power over death. This is our hope. In Christ, we have life. He died on the cross. In Christ, we have life forevermore. He was raised again. And he was showing us that. He was showing us what he would do in Genesis 22. And Abraham had no idea. And he was proclaiming through the people in the Gospels on Palm Sunday in the triumphal entry who he was and what he was going to do. And they had no idea. That's why Jesus said it really didn't matter if the people said it or not. This is what's happening. N.T. Wright, great theologian when it comes particularly to the Gospels, uh, has a book called The God Who Became King. And this is really what's happening. This triumphal entry is the beginning of the coronation of a new king, King Jesus. He becomes king. He becomes Lord is how scripture describes it. In his obedience on the cross, he becomes Lord. And this is the coronation of that. This is the beginning of that. And so someone was going to cry out. And God was gracious enough to this crowd to let them be the ones who in their ignorance proclaimed the truth of God. And let me say two things and then we're, we're done. The first is this. Abraham, David, this crowd, so many others. They didn't understand 
the depth of the truth that they were communicating. And yet they did. Now for some of us, the biggest difficulty that we have with proclaiming gospel truth to those who are perishing is that we feel like we don't know how to adequately explain it. But the thing is, even as we just speak gospel, even if we don't understand the depths of what you're saying, because look, I don't. I don't. My finite mind has no means of grasping how infinitely I offended God and how much more still he has saved me. I I just read back the text and what smart people before me said. That's all I do. Like, it's nothing fancy. I mean, literally, I read the text. I read smart dead people. Then I come here, I read the text, and I repeat what smart dead people said. It's what I do. And God speaks in power through the preaching of his word. He does it when Brad preaches. He does it when David preaches. He does it when the word of God is rightly preached. His spirit comes, moves in power, and people are saved as the gospel is proclaimed. I'm just an idiot up here talking about a God who is great and trusting that he's going to move. So feel free to be idiots out there talking about a God who is great, bumbling through it. God... (laughs) not knowing really what you're saying, and see and see if God, by the power of His Spirit, doesn't save people. There's nothing that makes God happier than saving people through people who don't know what they're talking about. It's all He does. It's all He does. So be comforted in that. Be challenged in that. Number two, which probably should have been number one, because as you know, the imperatives of the gospel only follow the indicatives of them. That is that the commands that God gives us only can be filled as we understand who we are in Christ. If you are not in Christ, look today at our great and glorious Isaac, sacrificed by his father, risen again, and see this. See this. There's no sacrifice that you can give God that is in any way able to satisfy his wrath. So for a moment, let the deep fear of the wrath of God sink in so that you can see the resounding joy that comes when you recognize that God made for himself a sacrifice. When you hear the truth of the gospel as preached by Abraham, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. God provides the sacrificial lamb, and he did it. And that lamb's name is Jesus. So trust in the name of Jesus this morning. And then you can join with us as we together sing for the entire world to hear Hosanna. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Let's pray. God, you are so good. 